Tonight's reading is Acts chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language a keldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. This is God's word. My name's Phil. I'm the associate minister here. It's lovely to have you with us tonight. Let's pray. And then we'll look at this passage together. Father God, we pray that whether we're familiar with these things or new to them, that you would help us 
to see more of the truth about you, that we might have confidence that there is forgiveness in life, even for us. Amen. Let me say at the outset that the main application of this second half of Acts 1 is not that future kings should be chosen by lot rather than primogeniture. It is not that kind of sermon. It's not that kind of passage. Okay, we're not going to be doing that tonight. The relevance of this passage, we we had the whole of Acts 1 read, but we're just looking at the second half, having looked at the first eight verses last week. The relevance is this. It teaches us that you and I can trust the Bible. The theme is the apostles. The Greek word apostles, it just means sent ones. And the theme of the passage is all about the appointment of this 12th apostle. The the apostles are the authorised witnesses who will lead the Jesus movement as it moves out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. That's the theme. But the relevance of the section, why it matters to you and me, is what we learn about the reliability of God's word, the Bible. And you and I are going to learn, we can trust today the things that God promises to us because we can trust what the Bible says about Jesus. We can trust the stuff that is promised about our future because we can have certainty about what the Bible says about Jesus' past. Now, here's why this matters, uh, whether you've been a Christian for decades or you're still just looking into these things. At the heart of Christianity is the promise that because of what Jesus did, in particular in dying and rising again, because of what Jesus did in the past, you and I have the certain promise of forgiveness and eternal life now. That's the heart of Christianity. Because of what Jesus did at a historical time in the past, you and I can have certainty about God's promise that there is forgiveness and everlasting life for us in the future. It's like this. Uh, Imagine a wealthy benefactor says, on your 30th birthday, I'm going to give you access to a trust fund in your name, which is now worth £20 million. That's nice. That'd be very nice indeed. How can I be sure? Well, 20 years ago, I invested £50 in your name in Google, Apple, and natural gas. And £20 million is what it's going to be worth very, very soon. Now, how confident do you feel about this conversation that somebody emails you about um, from a Nigerian bank account? You, you think, ooh, I've seen these scams before. Until I've actually seen details of this trust fund... Once I've seen oh, details of, oh, this money was invested in the past, this trust has been set up in the past, then I'll, then I'll believe your promise about what's going to happen in the future. But I need to see evidence that this money has actually been invested in the past, that this trust exists before I get excited about what you're telling me is going to happen for my future. And when we are certain about what Jesus has done in the past, then we'll be confident and excited about what he's promised for the future. And it's the gospel accounts, it's the Bible that gives us that certainty. So what is at stake is whether I'm going to live a life where frequently I am crushed and overwhelmed by shame and guilt and feeling of worthlessness, or a life confident that God loves me and accepts me and I'm forgiven. Whether I live a life 
with the fear of death hanging over me like a dark cloud, or whether I live confident that there is an eternal, unbreakable future for me because Jesus rose again. You'll only live the confident, joyful, world-changing life that God longs that we would live if you believe what Jesus said and did. Okay, let's get going. Um, Last week, we launched into our exploration of the book of Acts. Uh, Historian and eyewitness Luke charting the spread of the Jesus movement from Jerusalem towards the ends of the earth. It gets to Rome by the end of the book. And he wants to teach us three things we saw to give us confidence as we follow Jesus in our day. He wants to demonstrate that the message of the risen Jesus Christ is credible. You can believe it. It's healthy for society. Look at the culture it creates. And it spreads in difficult, less than ideal circumstances. So don't panic if things seem difficult in our day. And tonight it's really the credibility that's the focus. As we see, the message of Jesus is credible because it's grounded in the reliable testimony of these eyewitness apostles. Now, Ephesians 2.20 describes the apostles as the foundation of God's people. We had the whole of Acts 1 read because back in Acts 1 verse 8, as we saw last week, Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus ascends to heaven, but he promises, I will send my Holy Spirit to give you 12 apostles the power to go out and to take the message of Jesus to the ends of the world. Okay, just two points. Firstly, you can trust God's promises for the future and you can trust God's testimony about Jesus in the past. You can trust God's promises for the future. Verse 12, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now, the mathematically astute among you will have noticed an immediate problem as the passage was read. There should be 12 apostles. There are 12 tribes in Israel and the apostles are to be the fulfillment of that. The foundation of God's new people, not a rejection of the Jewish people, but the fulfillment of what the Jewish people were, which is God's new humanity, but now open to the people of all nations. And so the fulfillment of the 12 tribes of Israel needs to be the 12 apostles, but there are only 11 listed in verse 13. Now, don't get confused by the mention of Judas. There were two Judases in the original 12. Um, For understandable reasons, uh, the Judas here is called Thaddeus in some of the other lists. If you talk to teachers from some, of the, um, from some of the schools around, you'll hear that shortly after September the 11th, a number of children who had been called Osama had their names changed. <laughs> you do, if that's your name. You know, okay, I'm going to change that name. If your name's Judas and you're an, and you're an apostle, you're probably going to change it. So that's why there's a Judas here, but in some of the other lists you'll see um, it's Thaddeus. But that's not the Judas Iscariot. Now the issue is just a little bit bigger than Hang on, there's 11 of us and there need to be 12. Because the whole Judas Iscariot, Judas the traitor business, well, it, it does rather call into question God's trustworthiness. I mean, you can imagine the discussion. Peter's kind of the leader. Look, Peter, 
it's, um, it's all very well and it's rather nice. Jesus saying, you will be my witnesses and you're going to take the kingdom of Jesus to the ends of the earth. But yeah, it doesn't bode well for the rest of the plan if one of the 12 key leaders he chose turns out to be the man who betrayed him to death. I mean, how are we supposed to trust him for all the other stuff? Well, look at how Peter answers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. So they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is the field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms. May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place of leadership. So Judas' betrayal is not a reason to doubt God. It's actually a reason to trust him even more. Because he says, no, 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 this is exactly what God even said would happen. And he he proves that by turning to two psalms. Now, the psalms, this collection of prayers and songs, mainly written by King David a thousand years before Jesus. And Psalm 69 is an anguished prayer in which David expresses his devotion to God. He says, I'm consumed by zeal for your temple. And because of that, he's hated and viciously opposed. And then Psalm 109 is a a lament where he talks about being betrayed by one of his closest friends. Now, neither psalm has a specific prediction. One day my descendant, the true king, will be betrayed by one of his 12 closest friends, and you should appoint someone else in their place. Wouldn't be very good poetry if it did say that. It doesn't work like that anyway. Rather, what happens is after Jesus' resurrection as he teaches them how to understand the Old Testament, he shows them that the Old Testament, in particular the Psalms, there is this pattern that appears throughout that the anointed King David is opposed, betrayed, and attacked. And he trusts God to judge his enemies and to raise up leaders for his people. And they begin to understand that that David's life was a pattern, or to use the theological term, a type of the true king, great David's greater son, the Messiah Jesus. And so they realized, oh, look, what Judas does is exactly what we should have expected would happen. The ultimate king is bound to face an ultimate betrayal, just as David, the king, faced lots of betrayal. And this betrayer needs to be replaced. So what? Well, as Peter points out, when Judas betrayed Jesus, it wasn't some unexpected turn of events that threw God's whole plan and God's, oh, gosh, what do I do now? If you read the Old Testament carefully, you'd see this was God's plan all along. Not even the wicked betrayal of Jesus by one of his closest friends could frustrate God's plan. It just ends up fulfilling it. As Peter proclaims, if you look um, just over into Acts 2 verse 23 over the page, a couple of days later, Peter will proclaim, this man... Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. Okay, so what? 
Well, here's the relevance for you and me today. If even that, if even Judas' betrayal ends up just fulfilling what God has always promised, then you and I can trust today that what God has promised to you and to me, nothing, nothing can stop him fulfilling those promises. I mean, of course they'll come true. God's words create reality, quite literally. In the beginning, God says, let there be light, and light has to appear. That's what happens when God speaks. Just things have to happen. So you can trust when God's word promises in Acts 2, whoever puts their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will have their sins forgiven through his death. You can trust him. Even when you feel utterly burdened with guilt and shame, you can trust him when others won't forgive you. You can trust him when you can't forgive yourself. You can trust him that if he has promised, if you trust in Jesus, you'll be forgiven. Well, then come judgment day, you'll be safe and welcomed by God because he's promised and nothing can frustrate his promises. You can trust him when he promises, as Jesus does in Matthew 28, I will be with you always. Even when he feels very distant, even when our lives are chaotic and messy and dark and hopeless, you can trust. If he's promised, then wherever I am, he will be with me. You can trust him when he promises in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. If God promises and nothing can frustrate his promises, then it will happen. Which is great, but it does all kind of assume that Jesus actually did and said what we're claiming. And how can we be sure about that? And that's what the second section of this passage looks at. You can trust God's testimony about Jesus. So the focus now shifts from what God said in the Old Testament to what will soon be written in the New Testament, and especially in the gospel accounts. Let's see how we get there. So verse 21, Therefore it was necessary to choose one of the men who has been with us the whole time uh, who's been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of us must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you've chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go to where he belongs. Then they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias. And he was added to the 11 apostles. So a replacement for Judas is to be chosen to be the 12th apostle. Three key things. Seen, selected, and set down. The replacement must have seen what happened. They must be selected by Jesus. And what they saw is then set down in writing for us. So firstly, seen. The key criterion is that the apostle must have seen what Jesus did when he was on earth, right from the start of his ministry in Galilee through to his resurrection. Now, as an aside, I hope you see that this means you can't have apostles today, not in the capital A sense. Now, some churches call pioneering leaders are apostles. And in one sense, that's all right, because apostle just literally means sent ones. But given that the way the New Testament uses it, which is almost always this, this particular foundational role of the eyewitnesses, 
who would be the authorised people to testify about what Jesus said and did. I don't think it's really a helpful um, thing to call leaders these days. But that's um, by the by in one sense. More importantly, I hope you can see the concern for truth or for reality, perhaps a better word. Jesus wants to ensure that there are authoritative witnesses to the things he said and the things he did. The 12 apostles need to be eyewitnesses. 12 random strangers won't do. You know, I tell you what, you 12, you can be the 12 apostles. You up for it? What's the pay? Great. You know, it, no, they've got to be eyewitnesses. Because he wants to ensure that the message that spreads is the true message of what he said and did. Now, in the modern West, we possibly shift a little uncomfortably in our seats at talk of truth in the religious realm, because too often we know that that's a power play. It's a mask for intolerance and fundamentalism and violence. And you think, look, okay, surely, actually, it's all right if I have my own views about Jesus? And lots of people do. I mean, look online or study theology and you'll find there are, there are dozens of different Jesuses out there. There's the socialist Jesus, whose message was really that he'd come to overthrow the order and to give power and wealth into the hands of the poor and the marginalized. There's feminist Jesus, whose mission was to overthrow the patriarchy. There is love is all that matters, Jesus, who taught it doesn't matter what you believe. The most important thing is that you love one another. There's even Alien Jesus, which I have to say, there's a surprising slash alarming number of books that have sold a very alarming number of copies that claim Jesus is an alien. And all the others, there are elements of what Jesus actually says in there, but this one, not so much. I mean, what's the harm? I mean, isn't the important thing that I, you know, I have some kind of respect for Jesus? Well, imagine this. Imagine someone hacks your Instagram and TikTok accounts, or if you're over 40, your Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And they, they take over your accounts and they present themselves as you. So they interact with and message your family and your friends as if they're you. They give their hot takes on the news and share articles and memes and whatever, but they do so as if it's all coming from you. How would you feel about someone else effectively claiming to be you and misrepresenting the things you think and feel to others? Well, doesn't Jesus have the right to be known as he really is? Doesn't Jesus have the right to have people judge him on the basis of the things he actually said and and actually did? Doesn't he have the right to ensure that the official records of his life are true? Well, as we see, there are 120 um, people he could have chosen from to be the eyewitnesses to the events. And so he has to select which one. He chose the other 11 in his earthly ministry, and now Matthias is chosen by Lot. Proverbs 16.33 tells us, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, after the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church, as we'll see uh, in next week in Acts 2 at Pentecost, you never again hear about lots being used. Now, God has given us his Holy Spirit to enable us to prayerfully understand his word, the Bible, and take decisions. But here it happens by lot. So God selects the 12 apostles who will be empowered by the Spirit to spread the true message of Jesus. Now, of course, all of the apostles die eventually. But God has acted to ensure that 2,000 years later, 
you and I can be just as certain as the first century Christians about what Jesus said and did. Because the apostles then set down in writing what they'd witnessed. That's why uh, Luke wrote Luke's gospel. He wasn't an apostle, but he, uh, he collects their eyewitness accounts. I think we've got Luke 1. Um, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And when the apostles start to be killed off by the authorities, it's interesting, they don't replace them. You see with James killed in Acts 12, they don't then um, dig, dig out... Um, the, uh, the other apostle who wasn't selected and say, you know what, um, you were, you know, you were, it was a close second to Matthias, but um, now that James has been killed, um, Joseph, you're in. It doesn't happen like that. You don't always need to have 12 or even one. They're just needed at the start of the church. And their mission, their role as authoritative witnesses, it's fulfilled once the Bible accounts of Jesus are written down. And that's why, reflecting on this, uh, the great church leader, John Calvin, says that Jesus ensured that we would have these accounts written in the Gospels so that the truth about Jesus should neither perish through forgetfulness nor vanish through error nor be corrupted by the audacity of men. In other words, to make sure you and I, a couple of thousand years later, could know the truth about Jesus. And for 2,000 years, the reliability of these gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, has been attacked. In the last 200 years, all the intellectual and archaeological firepower of the modern West has blasted relentlessly away against the authority and reliability of the gospels. But the truth is, they remain standing. They have been found to be reliable, to be the eyewitness accounts written shortly after Jesus' resurrection. And if you've got serious questions about whether you really can trust the Gospels, I would urge you to read. There are a number of excellent books, perhaps um, depending on um, how academic you want to get. These are the two books I'd recommend. Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter Williams on the left, which is shorter and more accessible. And then um, the Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, Richard Balcom. So don't try and go driving or operate heavy machinery after reading it because it is quite dry. Um, but it's, it's devastatingly compelling and broad-ranging and, and just annihilates the arguments that would try to claim this isn't really reliable eyewitness testimony. But either of those are, are great books. You can trust that what has been written is what was written at the time. So what? So meet the real Jesus through his witnesses in his word. We can find what the real Jesus really said and did in the Gospels. But actually the full truth is a step better than that. We can do more than just know about Jesus with confidence through the Gospels. We can know him, really know him. John writes at the beginning of uh, his epistle, 1 John 1. 1 John 1, he writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. Do you see his point? 
We don't just learn about Jesus in the Gospels. We have a real fellowship with him. That's why they wrote, so that you and I, years later, would have a genuine fellowship, relationship, knowledge of God. The Bible is not Jesus, but it is the means by which we know him. So it's not that you've got a Bible over here and there's these accounts and then I I have a kind of relationship with Jesus. It's much more that it is Jesus I relate to through his word, through the Gospels. I meet the real Jesus. This is the real Jesus speaking to me through his word. You meet as you read this, the God-man who died on the cross to wipe away your guilt and shame and who rose from the grave to give you unbreakable life. Look, you put it all together and basically the picture you get at the end of this passage is that the apostles are like the pilot of a plane, obviously. Now, if your dearly beloved family live on the other side of the world and you haven't seen them because of COVID for a number of years, what you need if you want to see your family is A, to be able to afford the exorbitant airfares these days, but also you need a reliable pilot to fly the plane. Now, as I get on a plane, having had a father who worked in aviation, I always, before I turn right into cattle class, I always have a look left, just to have a peek through the cockpit door, just to see what is the pilot look like. And I want to see enough grey hair that I think there's some genuine experience, but some a sort of youthful health. You know, you don't want them sort of collapsing dead at the, at the stick. And I also want to see that they're ugly enough, they're not going to be flirting with the cabin crew. So... As I said, you want an ugly George Clooney flying your plane, or I don't know what the female equivalent is, and I get in trouble if I say so, but that's the kind of thing you want. Now, you have no relationship with the pilot, but it's only if the pilot's reliable that you can have a relationship with the person you want to see, your mum, your dad, your brother, whoever. You need a reliable pilot to take you to them. And it's a bit like that with Jesus and the apostles. I mean, we don't give masses of attention to the individual apostles. I'd be surprised if most people could name more than six of them. But without them, we can't meet Jesus. Jesus is the key. It's Jesus who our souls need more than anything else in this world. It's Jesus who can forgive you your sins and give you eternal life. But he's no longer physically present on earth. And he authorized his apostles to be the pilots for the plane. In their accounts of Jesus Christ in the Gospels, we are brought into relationship with Jesus. So if you like, what we're meant to do in the light of this passage is trust the pilots and focus on Jesus. It'll get poignant tomorrow when... I guess many here join an estimated 4 billion people tuning in to watch a funeral. And given that it will be conducted by the Church of England, these words will be read, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Wonderful words, so long as Jesus actually said them. Wonderful words, so long as the one who said them really did rise from the dead. And wonderfully, because he appointed apostles and empowered them by his spirit, we know for certain he said them. He says them to you.
and he did rise. And so you can have life. And so love and dig deep into this book, not because you love words, but because here, through the witness of the apostles, you meet the God who loves you, Jesus Christ, your saviour, and your only hope in the face of death. It's a funny passage, all about the appointment of 12 men to a strange religious office 2,000 years ago. But what it really is about is you can trust the promises of God and you can meet the Son of God through his word, the Bible. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you. We thank you that we who live many years later are not left groping in the dark, are not left to our own ideas and our own notions of Jesus, but we can have certainty of what he said and did. We can know that he rose from the dead to give us life. And more than that, we can know the one who rose. Help us to know him, to love him, to delight in him that we might live confidently. And we pray especially perhaps tomorrow that as we see that funeral, we might remember that in Christ, even those who die will live forever. Amen.